Luke chapter 14, today we're going to be looking at verses 25 to 35. This is, um, this, this passage is by no means isolated. Um, let me, let me read this scripture and then I'll come back to that thought. Hear the word of the Lord. Now great crowds accompanied him and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's pray. Father, how desperately we need ears to hear. We don't have them on our own. Lord, we're deaf to You. We're dead to You in ourselves. But by Your your great mercy, according to the riches of Your mercy, according to the great love with which You loved us, You have made us alive together with Christ. By grace we have been saved. And we have eyes to see. And we have ears to hear. And what we're asking for today, Father, on top of all that You have already given to us, is those ears tuned to You. We pray for true spiritual hearing. And we ask, Lord, that what Christ says would be in our minds for comprehension and would settle down deep in our hearts taking root for obedience, for true worship, for Your glory and for our good. Give to us Your Holy Spirit, we pray. Bring bring to Yourself, Lord, glory from what You produce, what You cause in us. Bring Yourself glory. That's what we long for. In Jesus' name and for His sake I pray. Amen. This is a hard passage of Scripture. It is difficult. No person in and of themselves, left to themselves, will want to hear these words. Every person in themselves, left to themselves, will be repulsed at these words. 
And so, I, I say to you what I said just a moment ago, that this passage is not isolated. All along, Luke has been presenting to us the Lord of glory, Jesus Christ, the irresistible Christ, so that we would be one to Him, one to this love that He gives to us, one when He, one when he calls us to Himself, that our, our surrender to Him would be glad-hearted surrender. Luke has been writing for our certainty. Correct? We've been establishing that from the beginning. And lest you forget, that's verses 1-4 to of the very first chapter. As Luke introduced his writing to Theophilus, he said that he was writing so that he would have certainty concerning the things that he had been taught. About what? About Jesus. And, And I believe that Luke wanted Theophilus and God wants us, this word is to you and to me, God wants us to be certain of the truth about Jesus and certain of the worth of Jesus. And let me tell you just very briefly what I mean about the truth of Christ. If you study this gospel carefully, you pick up on something in the very beginning that in the opening of chapters 1, 2, and 3, each chapter as they open, Luke gives us very specific, careful, historical record. Different, quite different from the other gospel writers. For So in chapter 1, he says that all of the birth narrative of Jesus took place in the days of Herod the king. He's locating these events historically so that we have a verifiable record here that witnesses can also establish. In, in chapter 2, he says that it, all of this happened in the the days in the reign of Caesar Augustus, when he would have all of the world, the Roman Empire, registered for the purpose of taxes, taxes, and almost said taxes. <laughs> it's because there's a lot of taxes. Um, so, so, and then in chapter three, it was the same thing established again that Jesus' ministry began in the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. He wanted us to know the the truth of the record, that these things actually happened in time and place. He compiles an orderly account of who Jesus was and what he did and where he did it and when all of this was accomplished so we would be certain of the truth. These things, and that includes all of the detail of what Jesus said, his teachings and all that he did, his miracles happened in history time and space, but more, not saying in contradiction or that the truth is not important, it is, I'm just saying in addition, Luke writes this account so we would be certain of the worth of Christ, not just so that we would find Jesus interesting, because I think that if you get into the story of the history and all of the details and what was going on in that day, the the historian, very amateurish historian in me, is fascinated by these things. And I'm really interested. But Luke is not simply writing about Jesus for the sake of our interest. He is writing so that we would find Jesus irresistible. Irresistible. Not so that we would merely learn facts, but so that we would become followers. 
So he writes not only of the truth, but he shows to us by the Spirit the worth of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who came for us and our salvation. He writes so that when Jesus Christ finally puts forward His call, this great challenge to us who would follow Him, we would gladly give up. We would gladly bear the cost that comes with following Jesus. So that it wouldn't be begrudging. That it wouldn't be if I have to. But so that we would have glad-hearted surrender to Jesus Christ. So that we would say that any gain from this world is gladly counted as loss for the sake of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. Many people profess to have faith. Not nearly as many actually possess faith. That faith that says, I count everything as loss. Let's say it again with Paul from Philippians 3. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. That's everything. So that, 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 that saving faith is when Jesus calls us to suffer with Him, with, with that faith that the Spirit gives to us, we can actually say, in the sufferings of this life, this is light, momentary affliction that is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. So in this section of Scripture, particularly beginning with chapter 9, but now really coming to a focus here, we are learning about discipleship. What it means to follow Jesus. What the life of a disciple is going to actually look at. I want to reinforce this. It has always been the case that there have been people, many people in droves who have assumed by their proximity to Jesus that they actually had relationship with Jesus simply by their proximity that they had peace with God. And Jesus actually spoke of this. If you turned back to chapter 13, you don't have to, but verses 26 to 27, Jesus is warning about how we must strive to enter through the narrow door, and we must do so now because the time is short. And in verse 26, chapter 13, he says, Then you will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. Very similar to Matthew chapter 7, 21 to 23. Just by their proximity to Jesus, they thought that they had peace with God. They presumed on their relationship with Him. And in the judgment, it will be revealed that they have been dead wrong. You know, 
if Jesus himself physically, actually stepped behind this, not much of a pulpit, but if he stepped behind this thing every Sunday and preached the word to us, and we gathered here every Sunday all our lives long, it would do nothing to guarantee us salvation. Nothing. Proximity to Jesus does not save. Those who belong to Jesus will have conformity to Jesus. We will be made like Him. We will share in His sufferings. Let's look at these verses. Jesus says in verse 26, now listen, please, hey, this is what I love about you. What I love about this church, and it's been my experience from day one, I'm so thankful for this. If the Bible says it, you believe it. Right? There are many things that the evangelical church is guilty of dismissing, of minimizing, and this is one of them. So let's hear the very careful and precise words of Jesus when he says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be, he cannot be my disciple. Now, I know that we are wondering about this. I know that we are a little bit confused because, or we may tend to be, because this seems to be contradictory to what God has always said. For example, in Exodus chapter 20, in giving us the Ten Commandments, God said, honor your father and your mother. Right? And now, Jesus is saying, if anyone does not hate his father and mother, and all of these loved ones, hate your loved ones, how does that work? And even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So, we're not going to dismiss and we're not going to minimize whatsoever, but we need to recognize what Jesus is doing with the language of the time. We could call this, if we were a little more scholarly, you know, this is a, um, in fact, I even think it might, pronounce the word wrong or just cut off a couple letters. A, a, a Semitism, a Hebraism. This is a, a specific to that time and place and culture, a way of talking. But there's actually much biblical parallel. So Jesus does not literally mean, yes, you know, uh, treat your children maliciously. Whenever you get just a little bit of inkling, go ahead and beat them. He's not saying to, to spurn your parents and you know cut them out of your life and just shut out your family. What is this? This is the language, and we have biblical example. This is the language of choice. Of choice. Think of Romans chapter 9 in these difficult words, which are a quote from the Old Testament, where the Lord says, Jacob I have loved. And Esau I have hated. And that was, might be unfamiliar, 
um, scripture to you, but this is the language of choice, of God's election. It's not speaking of maliciousness. It is speaking of, in God's case, sovereign grace choice, whom He chooses to set upon His covenant love, His eternal electing love. Now, in our case, as Jesus applies this to us, He is saying, when it comes to me and your family, who are you going to choose? Who will you choose? If there is a divergence, if there is a separation of ways, who will you choose? Who will you stand with? Who will you go with if your family chooses one way and Jesus calls you another way? Whom will you choose? Only one can rule you. We cannot have two masters. We cannot have two first loves. Only one. Just as Jesus says, you cannot serve God and money. So it is with family. You cannot serve God and family. One will be God. And if we bring up to that same level of love, anything or anyone else, what do we have but an idol? This is the language of choice, of preference, of who we truly treasure. Jesus says, or Paul says rather in Galatians 1, am I now seeking the approval of man? He asked his readers, am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Let's, let's get that. If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Let me speak to the parents in here for a moment. I, I, I don't know how, I, I do know that in, in past generations, there was, uh, the proverb very incorrectly spoken, that said that children should be seen and, and not heard. And I know that um, because of many factors, one, because of a rather short lifespan um, and how often parents lost children in past generations, that um, a lot of parents would withhold affection from their children. And I think a lot of it had to do with when they lost children. If you go through our cemetery and you see the number of babies and young people buried out there in past generations, it's astounding and it's very sad. But anyway, I don't want to go too long on that. My point is that things have changed. Our society, for those whom we would call, you know, good people, good people. We idolize our children. We don't want to lose our children for anything. So my my question to you parents, as this calls us as disciples of Jesus to choose Christ over our children, my question to you is, will you encourage your children to sacrifice for Christ? 
if your children indicate that they believe that the Lord is calling them to serve Him in another place, far away, across an ocean, to another culture, will you hang on to them for all you can? Or will you say, I'm going to miss you with all my heart, but I give you gladly to the service of the Lord. Let us not idolize our children. Or, Jesus says, you cannot be my disciple. Verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, the cross to us does not mean exactly what it meant to Jesus' hearers, which is a shame, really. Because the cross is something we wear around our necks as a piece of jewelry. It's on every church steeple. It's the symbol of Christianity. And what it has lost in, in, over the years is its horrendous nature. That the cross was a terrible thing. That of all that it meant to the hearers that Jesus was speaking to right here, of all that it meant, it meant death. Above everything else, it meant death. Who was bearing His cross except one who was going to His death? That's what the cross meant. And that's what Jesus is calling you and me to. He's calling us to come and to die. Diedrich Bonhoeffer, who was a German theologian in the Second World War, ended up being hanged by Nazi Germany for his opposition to the regime in the final year of the war. He said, Famously, when Jesus bids a man come, He bids him come and die. Come and die. Let me um, approach this uh, like this because I, I want you to see that this is actually the language that we use all the time. but um, Or the meaning that we put out, but maybe in different terms. Uh, let me try to explain. You know, we're always saying for ourselves together and when we share the faith that if someone is going to be saved from the penalty of their sin, then through faith they must receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Right? Lord and Savior. What does that mean? What does that look like for our repentance? What does that look like for our repentance? I've been saying lately that in repenting, turning away from the old life to God, we must turn from or give up our self-rule and self-righteousness. See, the old me ruled me. Like we read in Isaiah chapter 53 in Sunday school this morning, we all like sheep have turned everyone to his own way. It was self-rule. I was king of my life. I was my own boss, my own man. I did my thing. I did it my way. But if Jesus is going to be Lord, that king's got to die. He's got to be put down. Death to self-rule. And we must submit to the Lordship of Jesus. That's repentance. Self-rule dies. We give it up. And Jesus is Lord. 
and also self-righteousness. If Jesus is going to be my Savior, then I must die to the old dependence. See, to be right with God before, I was depending on me and what I could do and what I could achieve, morally speaking. But now it's death to that. Death to self-righteousness. And I give it up and receive by faith Christ alone as my Savior. He is Lord. He is Savior. He rules my life. And He is all my righteousness. And that's how someone converts. That's how someone converts. We turn from our idols to serve the living and the true God and to wait for His Son from heaven, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Just like the Thessalonians did, which is what I was quoting. I want to, um, before I move on, I want to encourage you because when we look at these words of Jesus, one way that the words might get twisted in our minds is we may think, okay, super disciple. (laughs) Not just, you know, simple disciple plodding along, but super disciple who is always in a sprint on the way to glory. And that's not the case. Recently I was reading uh, a book on the First World War And when you think about the First World War, you think about battle and you think about trench warfare in particular. Picture two soldiers in a trench about to go over the top, go over into that that hail of bullets and who knows what else from the other side. One is a hardened combat veteran who has been there and done this to the point where he is almost numb to death and numb to going over the top. He just acts reflexively, automatically when the order comes. Beside him, there is a replacement soldier. He is so young. He has not seen battle before. There's been so much war fought that they've had to call him up with barely any training. And when the order comes, he's going over for the first time. He is by no means numb to this. He has never been so scared as this. He is trembling and he is quivering on the inside. And then the order comes and both at once go over the top. They felt differently. They believed differently. They thought so differently but they both went over. So the disciple who comes to Jesus feeling so free and so confident, and he's just there gladly with Christ, and he has no fear about coming to Christ. He knows what it's going to cost, but he comes gladly to Christ. He's there, and you almost think he looks like, well, this is a super disciple, you know. But then the other comes to Jesus quivering on the inside and trembling and full of fears and he still has doubts, but he comes and he says, I know you are all. All I need and all that I want, you alone will be my Savior and you will alone be my Lord. I let all else go. So afraid. But I let it go and I embracing you. They look so different. Their faith may be of such a different quality but it is still true faith in both. So listen to me. As Jesus calls you to this, you just come. You come to Christ. Come to Him. 
no matter how weak your faith may feel, you come to Christ, counting the cost, but coming. Really, the question is, what is Jesus worth to you? What is He worth? You know the psalmist, Psalm 63, your steadfast love is better than life. Your steadfast love is better than life. If you don't know those words, you need to be in the Psalms more. I, my prayer for all of you is that this will be your heart. Lord Jesus, your steadfast love is better. Okay, let's read verses 28 to 30. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. He starts well, but he never finishes the job. And in an honor-shame culture, which we've been talking about, like this was, um, we've been talking about in recent weeks, that is, you know, there was a lot of shame in something like this. But Jesus, he he's saying there is a deliberation involved. There is a sitting down and there is a contemplating and a very careful thinking of what the cost will be to come to Christ. So I don't have time to get into all of this and, and it's a very simple parable. But, you know, the, the simple thing of it is, is a tower at your place worth more to you than the money in your pocket? Is the tower at your place that you want to build worth more than the money in your pocket? And if it isn't worth more than the money in your pocket, you're going to keep that money in your pocket. But if it is worth it, you have it, and it's worth it, you're going to build the tower and you're going to build it to completion. Jesus is simply calling you and I to be very careful in coming to Him and ask ourselves, is Christ worth it? This is not a by the way. I was almost about to say by the way. There is, there is something wrong with our evangelism when we're not talking to the unsaved about the cost of coming to Jesus. There is cost. We receive salvation freely. We're not talking about you must do so many works in order to merit God's favor. There is going to be a cost. Get it in your ears. Get it in your heart. There will be a cost of following Christ. So the question is, what is Christ worth? This is where my earlier analogy failed uh, or falls apart eventually. What are those two soldiers going over the top for? What do they hope to gain? They just hope to make it. They're not concerned so much about winning the battle, driving back the enemy. All they want to do, really, honestly, is live. Live to see another day. Why is Jesus, in this sense, calling us to come up out of that, that pit of the world over the top to Him? There's something, someone on the other side that makes coming out to Christ worth it. It's Jesus Himself. He is the prize. Is He worth it? Is He worth all of the rejection from the world that it will involve? Is it worth all the cost of obedience to Him, 
All of the sacrifice of the world's pleasures and as we'll get into, renouncing the world's possessions. Is Jesus worth it? It's really your life and Jesus. You see, if you come to Christ, it will cost you your life. Is He worth it? What is worth more? Your life or Jesus? It's simple, really, to think about in that sense. Which is worth more? Your life and all that you may gain in your life or Christ and eternal life with Him. Which is worth more? Count the cost. Jesus will have exclusive rights over your life. Exclusive rights. He doesn't broke any rivals. He's not going to tolerate any kind of competition. Jesus is the jealous God of the Old Testament. That's what this language is. This is His jealousy for His people. He will not have disciples who are also following other gods. He won't. He won't. So in Deuteronomy chapter 4, this is what the Lord said. Take care, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which He made with you, and make a carved image, the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Which doesn't mean He is petty. Let's not project our kind of jealousy on Him. It is a holy jealousy for His people. He would have us all to Himself because He is all. He is the Lord of all. And He requires all. We cannot go halfway. We cannot have Him on the side. It is all or nothing at all. So Jesus is saying, no carved images before Me. No possessions before Me. No family before Me. Nothing before Me. Christ is all. Let's continue our reading in verses 31 to 32. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate? Again, very careful, intentional weighing in the mind whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. All that we have, all that we are, must be laid down to Jesus Christ. Jesus does not mean that you should not own anything. Again, I don't want to dismiss what he is saying or minimize it in the least. There are clear principles of ownership, property, money in the Bible. Even when Ananias and Sapphira brought their supposed gift to the Lord, Peter said, you know, uh, when you, when you had that land, was it, wasn't it your own to do with what you wanted? And even after you're, uh, after you sold it, wasn't the money at your own disposal? Why are you lying to the Lord about that you sold it for so much? So he was saying, you owned it. You could have done with it. Um, according to the, the rights of an owner. Okay, so Jesus is not saying, give your house away, become homeless. You know that. I shouldn't spend so much time on it. 
But we are the stewards of God. What we possess must not possess us. And that is the great power of things in this fallen age. That money and possessions that we own may actually own us if we do not guard our hearts. We must guard our hearts. We are stewards. Ultimately, the things that we own belong to Him. And so, listen, does having more or having yea so much give you security in life? Those things own you then. Do the things that you are accumulating in this life, are they what give you satisfaction? Then those things own you. More than you are the owner, they are owning you. And again, they're of course being put up to the the level of idols, of we're worshiping these things. Jesus says, renounce all you have. Give it up to my ownership and my possession. There was, I don't have lots of time to talk about it. Nobody did this more faithfully than Bill. I could, I could tell you so many times that he gave to me beyond. We went up to Delaware in 2009 to a wedding. And he said, you know what? It would be a lot more comfortable ride for you and your family if you took my van rather than going in that little car of yours. And then while he had my car, he put it in the shop for me while I was gone on this mini vacation. There's an example to follow. Let me put what I said before like this. Being a disciple of Jesus will cost you your life. Being your own will cost you Jesus. Which one can you afford to do without? Which one are you willing to surrender and give up? I believe very strongly that put in those terms, which would I rather give up, my life or Christ? I believe that you will say, take my life. Take the world and give me Christ. Because Christ is all. The last, Jesus says in verses 34 to 35, salt is good. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Salt. This is a bit of a confusing um, parallel and word picture for us because we don't have the same uses for salt as they did in Jesus' day. Where I come from, we put it on the roads during the winter time, and we also use it for flavoring. In Jesus' day, they used it as a fertilizer. They used it as a preservative because they didn't have refrigeration, and of course, they used it for for flavoring as well. But the way that they got it was also different. In Palestine, in Jesus' day, they would take the the water of the Dead Sea, which has, I think, more saltiness in it than any body of water, any other body of water on the planet, and they would evaporate that water, leaving this chemical compound. They would have salt, and they would have these other crystals that looked like salt, but weren't salt and weren't good for anything. 
And if the salt got leached out of that, then they might look like salt, but you don't want it on your food. And it really, it's not good for a preservative, nothing. It's only just throw it away because it's good for nothing. It's a useless thing. What is Jesus saying here? Exactly what he says in John chapter 15 about the branch in the vine that does not bear fruit. What is that branch good for? Spiritually good for. It is good for nothing. I'll read those words to you. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. John 15 too. And if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. Salt that did not... Well, if it's salt, it tastes. But if... I'll just say, say it again anyway. Salt that doesn't taste is good for nothing. Salt that can't preserve is good for nothing. Salt that doesn't fertilize is good for nothing. That you can't use for fuel, as they also did, good for nothing. Throw it away. Same way with the branch in the vine that is not bearing fruit. It withers. Throw it away. It's for the fire to be burned. Saltiness. Faithful disciples whose lives look like what they profess. Who not only profess faith, but possess faith in Christ who say, take the world and give me Jesus. Who say, I gladly count all things as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. All the gain, take it away, count it as loss, give me Jesus. And I will take up my cross and I will bear it all the way to glory. If it's quivering, trembling and plodding, it is still cross-bearing all the way to glory. So, I close with um, what I've said before. Just this. It's simple. Ask this question in your own heart. What do I want? This life or Jesus? Which is worth more to me? This life or Christ? Eternal life with Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your clear Word. Oh Lord, our temptation is going to be to minimize this and to say, it's not quite like this. I can get by with just this much. Some world... And some Jesus. Lord, but you are over all and you rule all and you would have us all. You would, you require all of who I am, all that we are. Father, I pray that you would give us eyes to see the surpassing worth of knowing Christ ourselves, his inestimable worth. His glorious worth. So Lord, that we are so compelled that we gladly give up this world to to gain Jesus. No matter what the cost in this world's life. Father, would you please help every heart? I know, Father, that there are some hearts here 
who are struggling, who find the world alluring, who are so tempted to go their way. Lord, help them. Give them eyes to see and give them ears to hear. Oh God, may their faith be all in Christ. These things I pray in His name. Amen.